the Recovery Revolution will be podcast on the Since Right Now Addiction Recovery Network. This is the Unruffle Podcast, Episode 45. This is a podcast about recovery through creativity. We live an intentional life. We thrive. I am Sandra Primo. And I'm Tammy Salas. And we are The Unruffled. Good morning. Good morning. How are you? Hmm, I'm good. I'm getting ready to go on a little trip, so... Uh just getting all the things done this morning before I have to head out. You know, I love, I love flying so much. (laughs) (laughs) You do it a lot for somebody that does not like to fly. You definitely fly a lot. So I I do. Well, I think the problem, like I got, not that it's not a problem, but I got these emails this week and I was like, Oh, all these fairs are on sale. I don't like to fly. Where can I go? Um, (laughs) Oh, when can I get to Austin to see Sandra? Oh, I have to think about this. I have to chat with her. Hmm. Yeah, I can't stop myself. I don't, I'm much better um, traveler now that I'm sober and now that I'm not drinking um, caffeine, Mm -hmm. Um, which I chatted with our friend Jolene Park, who co-hosts the edit podcast. I took a workshop from her a couple weeks ago and I was telling her about the caffeine and she said this really great line, Sandra. She said, I don't demonize any food. Mm -hmm. So she said, she said, I don't demonize anything. So she said, what I've learned is that some people can't process caffeine and some people can yeah and you've talked about that like it doesn't you don't have that effect right Mm -mm. no I'm very sensitive to it so since I stopped drinking caffeine when I fly I don't have as much anxiety yeah so it's better every time but yeah so what's going on with you what's up with your morning oh I've had a sick kid um so, you know, practicing those things that are out of our control, <laughs> like sick children, um, trying to stay in gratitude that I have a flexible life and a flexible schedule that I can stay home and love on her and, and help her nurture her and help her get back to well. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you know, it's, I mean, I had a, I, you know, I don't, don't put me on any sort of pedestal because I definitely had my 30 seconds of pity party. Like, I think I've just been a mother. I've only mothered for the last 48 hours plus. Um, but it's a big job. It's, it's okay. Especially when we it's, have all these other plans and ideas, right? <laughs> Right. And I mean, it's something that I've struggled. I've talked about it. It's something that I struggled from day one of motherhood is that I, you know, I've wanted to cling on to an identity outside of motherhood. And um, so I, I, I struggle with that still. I still do. I get indignant when I don't have my Sandra time to do Sandra things that are very, very important. <laughs> <laughs> they are. They are. Yeah. Um, I was going to ask you, I wore one of your beautiful kimonos um, last weekend. 
I saw that you have a bunch up in your site that you have on sale. I sold almost, I think there's only one, there's only one left in my, um, in my marketplace. So yeah, there's just one left. I, uh, am finishing up a couple of, um, orders and some other little things, but I am looking forward to get, getting back in my, in my studio. I feel like it's a long lost friend. Well, when I wear your kimono, it's like, I feel like a million bucks. Aww. I do. And not Same one, everybody loves it. I mean, every, I've never received more compliments. Aww. So, I love that. Um, when I wear it, my sponsor gave me a little plaque last week and said, I am a woman. Um, that's my superpower. And I wore it with, um, you know, the, your beautiful kimono and I was like that's how I feel right now like I feel like a wonder woman I feel pretty awesome oh well that's how I always want I mean that's why I you know it's a labor of love but that's that's exactly why I make stuff is speak make those things make those garments because I really want women to feel just beautiful in their one-of-a-kind thing that nobody else that no one else has so Well, and just your craftsmanship and your sewing, it's just, I just look at it, Sandra, it's just so perfect. I mean, I know it's not perfect probably, but I mean, it looks pretty darn perfect to me. It's nothing like I could, I could never, um, not that I couldn't do it. I just, I, that's not in me. That's not my talent. And I really appreciate, um, I really appreciate your work. Oh, thank you. Thanks. So you'll get out making some more. That's is yeah. it feeling like it's time? Because it kind of comes oh, in waves. Like you're creating so work, time. right? It does. It does. Well, and that's what, you know, when you wear a lot of creative hats or you're multi-passionate, you know, you, you, the things come in seasons and that is true. I don't sew a whole lot in the winter. It seems like I don't make a lot of wintry clothes anyway. Um, I don't use a lot of knits or you know, I don't make sweaters. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, winter seems like a time that I can focus on some other things, which I actually did some writing and stuff, but, um, but yeah, the sun's coming out. Spring is, spring is, we'll be here before we know it. And I'm ready to, ready to jump back in. I miss it. Yeah. It's been super warm here. It was like 81 degrees last week in town. And I was like, what is happening on February 1st? I was like, what is happening? Oh, wow. You know, but it's California. So it, it, yeah. this is a trick, though. We're going to have big storms coming, I'm sure. Um, mm-hmm. you know, I better knock on something. But uh, And how's your how's your painting going? How's your new your new project going? It's um, it started off with a bang um, and going pretty well. But this week, my professor chatted with me and she knows I've been looking at a lot of other people's work because she told me to. <laughs> And so I, that's what I did all last week. I looked at other people's work. I printed images. I wrote what I was drawn to. But then this week she says, okay, I want you to stop looking at other people's work. Yeah. Is is it, is it stopping you? I'm like, well, I'm not painting like other people because I just admire it. I don't, I'm a little intimidated to try to copy someone, but she was like, well, that's how you learn. That's how you learn your style is really by doing that. Mm -hmm. But I don't, I'm hesitant to do that. And so she said, I want you to start self-referencing. I want you Mm -hmm. to start going through your own Instagram feed. I want you to start looking at all your drawings in your studio. 
And she always asks me this question because she, she follows me on Instagram. She sees my stuff. She's always like, why don't you paint like you draw? Mm. Like, why isn't your work reflecting like what you do in your journals? Mm. And I'm like, I don't know. I'm not sure. So she's given me a lot to think about. Mm-hmm. Um, but she talked about my style, what I wear, what I'm drawn to, the shapes of my earrings that I like, um, mm-hmm. the color of my red shoes I wear all the time. She's like, I want to see more of you in your paintings, you know. Mm-hmm. I want to see that. So that's what I'm thinking about. But because of that, I got really stuck painting yesterday. <laughs> mm, yeah. It's like Tuesday I painted eight paintings, got them started. I was like ready to go. And um, yesterday I dabbled on five of them. Um, yeah. So I like having them all going at the same time to kind mm. of keep it cohesive with the color palette. But um, But I don't know. We'll see. That could change yeah. next week because I don't know. Right. <laughs> I'm just not sure. Right. Yeah. Um, I wanted to share something, though. I don't think I told you about it. We had a little um, tea and toolboxes meeting meet up last weekend. Oh, fun. With the gals that um, we had started a book club, I'd mentioned. And after like two or three meetings, we were like, eh, we're all at different phases of our recovery. So we all were wanting to read different things, you know. Mm-hmm. how that is in early recovery I was like devouring things that were I wanted to right read. and um so we decided to to nix that but we still wanted to get together once a month um on a Sunday to get together and chat and so we decided to, to just take a riff on our unruffled podcast our three favorite things that are in our sobriety toolbox or our creative toolbox and bring an item and have tea and chat with four ladies and share like what's been working for us over the last month that was like a big thing and it was so helpful. It was really good. Oh, yeah, I really bet. So I took a few notes, you know, and then after the meeting, everybody just emailed a little chain of, like, what they had shared so people could go to the links or find, you know, what we chatted about. It was like a book or a podcast or something. So it was That's like cool. totally low pressure, low key. Um, you know, if you didn't rem- – I mean, everybody can think of something, right? It's not right. like it show up empty-handed. So I had shared about – Natalie bought me a Himalayan salt lamp. Mm-hmm. And I had looked up the, the health benefits and, um, of course, everything was debunked on another website saying none of it was true. So right. it was like, I said, so here's the gist. I like walking into my room now at night and there's like this really beautiful pink glow. Right. Yeah. Right. Well, <laughs> exactly. It makes you feel good. End of story. It could, it's a placebo effect even. Mm-hmm. Your results may vary. <laughs> Period. <Exactly. laughs> But it's, it's calling me to bed earlier, Sandra, because there's this nice, beautiful pink glow in there. And then uh-huh. I'm leaving it on really low throughout the night, which normally I'm very light sensitive. But it's so soothing. And oh, so nice. when I wake up early in the morning now, I'm getting up earlier. I'm not jarred by a white light. Um, it just feel the whole thing just feels good. So I just want nice. to share that that's what we did. I have one, but I forget to plug it in. So you're reminding me to plug it in. Yeah. yeah. So that's all I got. That's all I got. That's nice. <laughs> well, let's talk about who we're having on the podcast today. I'm so excited. Yes. Yes. Um, Andrea Owen is who we're having on the podcast. And um, for those of you who don't know her or her work, um, you'll get a chance to get to know her on this episode. But she is sober and an author a mentor, a certified life coach, and she helps high-achieving women let go of perfectionism, control, and isolation, 
and that she helps them to try to choose courage and confidence instead. And she has helped thousands of women manage their inner critic to create loving connections and live their most kick-ass life. Yeah, she's the host of your Kick-Ass Life podcast. Um, And she she's, I think on her, what, 200th episodes yeah. around there. So she's been podcasting for a while, yeah. but she, uh, recently, or I guess she started it last year and then it seeped over to this year. Um, she started a recovery series where she has even featured a lot of our friends from the recovery space and even women that we've had on our podcast, like uh, Laura McCowan, Carly Benson, and, uh, Tiffany Hahn. And she just is, um, she just released a new book, um, which is how to stop feeling like shit, which I love the title. I wonder if her title, I wonder if her publisher loved that title. I wanted, I should have asked her that. Um, but it's 14 habits that are holding you back from happiness. And so that's out and you can find that now, but she previously wrote another book called 52 ways to live a kick-ass life. Um, BS freedom. BS Free Wisdom to Ignite Your Inner Badass and Live the Life You Deserve. So she has two books out there um, that if you guys are interested, you can go find. And um, when she's not juggling her full-time coaching practice or hosting retreats, she has a lot of other interests like triathlons. She has two children and a husband. Um, she, we didn't get to chat about this, but she is a retired roller derby player and she had a, she skated under the name Veronica Vane. So <laughs> I know we have to chat with her about that another time because I know our other yeah. friend, um, Nicole, uh, Morgan was mm-hmm. on our show and she's a roller derby. So yeah, maybe yeah. Have a little little show with them <laughs> roller derby powwow <laughs> that's right but you can learn more about andrea at her website um your has all of her offerings the recovery series um like we mentioned on her podcast and just very very creative honest straightforward woman i really enjoy yeah. talking to her yeah i think you'll really enjoy this interview all right guys good morning andrea Good morning. Morning, guys. Thanks for being with us today. Yeah, we I'm are excited. so happy to, on, happy, happy to have you on our show. I love talking about this topic, and I just, yeah, I'm excited. Good. Okay. So we had a little bit of a love connection, I think, with our friend and former yeah. podcast guest, Tiffany Hahn. I think she yes. was like, she was like, she was like um, setting us up. Yes, 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 she did. Love that girl. <laughs> well, she was on she was on your podcast, right? The We've been the friends for a series. long time. Oh, okay. Yeah. And she listened to my recovery series and then emailed me about her own recovery. And so we had a, a good conversation about that. And then yeah, we've we've swapped a lot of stories. Well good. Well, we're gonna get to all of that, all your stories. Um, but we wanted to know if you could we could start off the pod with you sharing with our listeners about how you knew that it was time to quit drinking. Oh my gosh. Okay. Well, <laughs> let me, let me kind of backpedal and tell a little bit of the backstory because it, it is important. Sure. I think when my decision came, so my dad got sober when I was 18, my mom had just left him hmm. and I was, I was an only child. I have half siblings, but they were much older than me and I didn't grow up with them. So I was essentially an only child and my mom had had enough. My, my father was very much a high functioning alcoholic. I did not know he was an alcoholic (laughs) and he was never drunk. He always had a really great job and provided for us. I mean, we lived in a gated community and he drove a Mercedes. So in my world, 
those types of people aren't alcoholics. So mm-hmm. when he, my mom left, which was a surprise. And then a couple of months after that, he announced, he cracked open a beer as he did every night and announced that he was checking himself into an inpatient treatment center. I was like, for what? And he said, I'm going to quit drinking. And I was like, okay, whatever. And <laughs> didn't think much of it. And he left the next day wow. and I was 18 and um, you know, my mom had left too. And so I was essentially on my own. It was all very weird and, and kind of like an upheaval, but it was all very strange. And so when I went to his, you know, how they have like family mm-hmm. week and in these kind of treatment centers and, oh my gosh, there was people there that were addicts and this was a new world to us. And I was still very much, I had a chip on my shoulder and did not believe that my father belonged there. And so it was, it was an interesting situation, but at the same time, it introduced me to what that looked like. And, you know, then as I kind of came around and he stayed sober and stayed with, um, he got sober with Alcoholics Anonymous and I would, he would invite me to get his, to watch him get his chips and, and I would go and, and then I was proud of him and, and that was that. And so fast forward. I, I personally, myself in my twenties really struggled with severe codependency and love addiction and really could take it or leave it when it came to drinking, looking back on it. Now I realize I didn't need drinking because my drug of choice was men and love and relationships mm-hmm. and control. And then when I turned about 30, uh, I got help from that and realized that, that was a big problem in my life. I had a string of, of very bad relationships that pointed to my, my problems, my unhealthy behaviors and lack of boundaries. So I got help for that and was doing pretty well. And that was also right around the time where I, um, I was on my second marriage and we had two babies and I noticed my drinking was picking up speed. And it was so interesting, you guys, because really I had let go of the love addiction. I was, I was finally setting, settling down with someone who, you know, it was the healthiest relationship I had ever been in. I was faithful for the first time in my, mm-hmm. in my relationships and I was bored and didn't have yeah. any kind of outlet and, you know, didn't have any other way to numb out. And I was also really grieving my identity as, um, as not, you know, as, as a single woman, you know, not having children. And so I was, you know, the mother of toddlers and, and was stressed out and all of the things that happened in, in motherhood for many of us. And, um, one day I realized I drank an entire bottle of wine by myself. And it was like a Tuesday night at home. It wasn't like, you know, out with girlfriends for someone's birthday. And I hid the bottle, the empty bottle from my husband, because I didn't want him to know. And then after that, a, a bottle became my regular for, for several months. And that's when the whispers really started in my head of this probably isn't normal. Um, and I knew based on my dad, I knew that I knew what was in store for me. Like my intuition told me this is where I'm headed and I didn't want that. And I also was angry about it. You know, I was like, you've got to be kidding me. Like I have to quit drinking. Like I don't have anything anymore. Like I can't, I can't run and and find a man to sleep with and I can't, you know, control everyone else's life. And like, please just let me have drinking. And, um, there was a couple of instances where, for instance, there was one time where my kids wanted to go outside in the cul-de-sac and have me pull them around in the wagon, which, you know, isn't, that much fun after five minutes. And so Mm -hmm. I I had an empty bottle of Diet Coke and I found myself pouring Merlot in that. And it was like two, three o'clock in the afternoon, 
pouring it into this empty bottle of Diet Coke and thinking I was a genius, you know, because I didn't want the neighbors to see me out there with a glass of wine in the afternoon. So that was like one of the things that happened where I was like, this probably isn't healthy. And it wasn't long after that um, where I called a friend who had, I knew she had like six or seven years of recovery. And I, I told her, I said, I think, I think I have a problem. Um, and I, I was worried that she was going to gasp. I really thought it was going to be this big deal. And she was like, okay. And we had mm-hmm. a conversation about it and it was really not a big deal to her. And she asked me to, she's like, why don't you just try to quit for 30 days and see what happens? Just, you know, it doesn't have to be that big of a deal. And I tried and I made it six days and white knuckled it and it was awful and I hated everyone. And then that's really what, when I was like, okay, <laughs> All right. this is a problem and I need to quit. And I went in uh, kind of kicking and screaming, um, but that was it. And that was six plus years ago. That was your, that was your NyQuil moment, right? No, that came four oh, months later. later. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Cause I read that and I was like, yeah, I understand. I understand. Yeah. I, it, I think it's, um, I think it's important to tell the story because I think that you probably have a lot of high bottom listeners. Mm-hmm. Yes. So, yeah. It's, I went to my first meeting and it was at an Alano club, which I didn't know what that was. And I, I thought that it said Alamo club. And I was like, like the Alamo in Texas. Like I didn't <laughs> understand what that was. So I pull up to this building and there was a homeless man in a wheelchair outside. And I was like, Oh my God, like this is not and you, and I made sure I, I must've changed my outfit like three times because if I was going to go to one of these meetings, and admit that I had a problem with alcohol, I sure as shit was going to look like I had everything together on the outside because I still was convinced that I was not like one of them. Mm-hmm. Like I may have a problem with drinking, but I'm not, I, I would maybe even at that point admit that I was an alcoholic begrudgingly, but I still like, you guys are still over there. Right. And so uncomfortable. And I go in with this ridiculously expensive banana Republic outfit on and, <laughs> And I, and it's, it's one of those meetings where, I mean, you know, like everybody knows each other and everyone's saying hi and you're sitting there like oh, uncomfortable. So this was your first meeting? Yeah. Where is the back door? Yeah. It was my very first meeting. Okay. I had been to other meetings, but I had gone with my dad. Right. Mm-hmm. And, um, and there was a woman who walks in and she's greeting everybody and she looks at me and she like throws her arms open. Like, where's my hug? And I'm like, does she think, does she think she knows? <laughs> she- <laughs> she and she goes, Welcome. We saved you a seat. And I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> Carla, love her. And, and she was great. And so I kept coming back. And I, I had a sponsor. And I was working the steps. And then so I had like a good four or five months of, of recovery. And, you know, had my pink cloud and everything. And then what happened was is my husband and I got into an argument, which is a huge trigger of mine, which I'm sure it is for many people. You know, daddy issues, abandonment issues. Oh, my God. He's going to leave me. And I wanted to drink and I knew I didn't want to break my sobriety. And so I called my sponsor. I did what I was supposed to do. She said, come over. So I went over to her house and we read from the big book and um, talked for a long time. And she sent me on my way. She said, go home and read this particular story in the big book. So I did. And I was totally distracted and I was home alone. And I had this thought (laughs) and I thought, you know what? I bet I could catch a buzz if I drank a decent amount of NyQuil, like not too much to like pass out, but just enough to like, cause I just wanted to change the way I felt. My conscious thought was I just want to buzz. The unconscious thought was I want to crawl out of my skin. Mm-hmm. And I, um, 
I mean, without even hesitation, I found myself in the bathroom chugging this cherry NyQuil. And I saw, I must've stood there for like five or 10 minutes, like waiting for the, you know, the little bit of rush head spin and I got nothing. And then I remembered I had heard an AA speaker talk about how she used to drink vanilla extract and I had mm. never heard of that before. So I was like, and you're oh, like, okay. what a great idea. What a great yeah. idea. Right. Uh-huh. Uh, Cause I'm not one of those people. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I understand. I made I made vanilla extract at the end of my drinking career. Oh, wow. So go ahead. <laughs> I didn't want to go to the liquor store or like, you know, crack open a beer or anything. So I thought like this is this is it was a loophole. I felt I yeah. found a loophole. So then I go in the pantry and I, I find vanilla extract and I'm drinking it. And I and it was awful. It like it was like, oh, worse than the Nicole. And I look at the back of the bottle and there was like this sediment that was like floating around in it that was like all settled at the bottom of it. And I look and it had expired in 2005. And this was 2011 that I was doing this. And so at that moment, I thought, oh, my God, this is bad. Like if I thought I wasn't an alcoholic, what am I doing? And then I got a case of the fuckets, um, which I call I hope I can say bad words on your podcast. <laughs> mm-hmm. okay. And then I um, went and got a little bottle of wine and drank the whole thing. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And. And that was a moment too, because later that, you know, just a few hours later, my kids were home. My husband had come home. We weren't speaking. And my son was jumping. He was four at the time and he was jumping on the bed. And I had, I mean, I wasn't even, I didn't even put it in the, in a glass at that point. I was just drinking it from the bottle and my husband was home, but I, so I had put the bottle in this like, um, cabinet that we had in the hallway and I'm sitting, I'm sitting on the floor on the carpet in the doorway of my son's room, you know, right next to the cabinet. So I could easily access it, but still watching my son and he's jumping on the bed and I reach over and I open the cabinet and I'm taking a slug from this bottle of Pinot Grigio. And he goes, and he's smiling at me and he goes, mommy, what are you doing? Because it looks funny probably to him. Like why is he drinking from this big bottle? And it was like one of those moments where everything slowed down right you have like an out-of-body experience and I I I just said honey I don't know Mm. I don't know Mm. and that was it and that was September 27th 2011 I just got goosebumps Mm. um I have not drank since and he's Uh, 10 now 10 and a half wow I'm so grateful that you had that moment though right I I needed it yeah 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 and that's the thing I, I used to hear in the rooms, like, you know, I'm a grateful alcoholic. And I used to think that was really dumb. I hated I hated the phrase. I hated hearing it. I hated it all. But now I'm like, oh, I'm one of those. I'm a grateful alcoholic. <laughs> you know, I'm not, I'm not super precious with that word. Like I say it in the rooms and I just, I don't know. I, I feel like your son right then, that was a, that was a divine moment right then. He's had a couple of those with me, including his conception. Um, but yeah, I think that I really needed that because, and I, I'm glad that you brought that up about being grateful because I believe that in the back of my head, I still, the, the addict in me was whispering, you're not like one of them. You know how we hear all the time, listen for the similarities, not the differences. Mm-hmm. I feel like that is tricky. I, I really, I wanted to find the differences. You know, the, the women that told stories about losing their children, the people who told stories of just humiliating themselves or getting DUIs or getting fired because they showed up drunk to work. I didn't have those stories. Right. And there was also a part of me that felt a little bit of shame around that. Like I felt other because I didn't have this rock bottom story. 
And I had other rock bottom stories that came before that because of my relationships, but my drinking story wasn't one of them. Mm. And so it was, but I knew I had to keep remembering, like, if I keep drinking, I will have one. Like the universe will hand it to me. (laughs) Right, right. And you know, something that people would tell me in the very beginning was, and this was so helpful for me, it was like, it really doesn't matter how much you drink or, or ultimately what your consequences were. It's just how it made you feel. Are you miserable? Check. <laughs> okay. Then you can stop. You can yeah. jump and off the bus. You can jump off the bus. And, and that, I also had a hard, I just wrote about this because I had a hard time with step one in the whole concept of my life had become unmanageable because I felt like I was doing a really great job of managing my outsides. Mm-hmm. And I didn't get it. I didn't get it. And people would try to explain it to me like, oh, it's a spirituality thing. Oh, it's your insights. And I'm like, I need, I needed someone to be more specific. So what I realized for me, and I don't, I don't know if, if anybody can relate, but my outside life was great. My inside life was unmanageable. More specifically, I had absolutely no concept of boundaries. I had, I was, emotionally illiterate. Like I did not know how to feel my feelings. I was terrified of them. Mm -hmm. And like those two things were the biggest things for me that were unmanageable and I didn't even realize it. Mm -hmm. And then that just amplifies your need to look, make everything look perfect on the outside. No, everything's fine. Everything's great. Look how well I am managing my life. Look at my home. (laughs) Look at my wardrobe. I'm great. Yeah, it's that that kind of, um, we're just trying to control everything, controlling our, like you said, you put on your Banana Republic outfit, right? And you're going to the Alano Club. That was my second meeting with the Alano Club. And I walked in there and I was like, what in the heck did I, okay, hold on. I sat in the very back row, of course, um, Mm -hmm. but I heard a speaker for an hour an older gentleman in his, um, I don't know, early 70s. And he was speaking to me. And as, as that being my second meeting, I was like, how could that be? How could I have something in common? How can I, how is he knowing how I feel? You know, and that felt really good to feel. I did feel other, but then I had this little thread, right, that, that, that you have in common with all these other beautiful human beings that are in those rooms. And it's like a light bulb, like, okay, I need to look at this a little closer. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, bringing up what you said about early motherhood and that, like, kicking off your drinking, I just, I always think uh, health care providers are doing young moms or first time moms such a disservice by not letting them know if you have the propensity to alcohol, you're going to get bored. Mm-hmm. And, you know, here are your warning signs. You know, instead we're just annihilated by, you know, the media with how moms need to, you know, keep drinking and drink more and and be sure you have your mommy juice and how can you get through this play date without wine. It's just so confusing. It's no wonder that first-time motherhood leads to overdrinking. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting, you know, cause I got sober in 2011 and this was before the explosion of that. Right. And I think we live in, we are now in a culture uh, where we glorify, um, drunk motherhood 
and we don't we, we make fun of it's funny it's a it's a it's a joke now and right. I think that also when I think for many of us in, in long-term recovery we get seen we get kind of pigeonholed as like the buzzkill like when we mm-hmm. I see it all the time on Instagram and Facebook and, and sometimes I do comment on it you know and I just say like hey for some of us this isn't funny um, you know I was that person where there was there was wine in my coffee mug, you know, the mugs that say like, there might be wine in this, like there was it for me and it wasn't funny. And, but, but yet again, and me being someone who does, I do feel like I have a great sense of humor, but this is the thing I can't have a sense of humor about. And so it's like, we don't want to be that person like that want, want, but but I do like, sometimes I comment and I'm like, Hey, if you're reading this and you have a problem, please get help. Um, There are other women just like you that, because I think too, for mothers, we have an extra layer of shame on it because oh, yeah. I was under, I was under the impression of like good mothers aren't alcoholics. They just are not like uh, it right. is black and white. If you have a drinking problem, even if you get sober, you're in a club all on your own that you don't want to be in. Like, right. Oh, that was, that mm-hmm. was hard. Mm-hmm. Definitely yeah. 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 I always say that we carry like an extra, extra, a piece of baggage in the, mm-hmm. <laughs> the overhead department. <laughs> no, you're right, Andrea. And and you, what you just said, like the, um, y- even if you're sober, like there's, the, this is part of a club that nobody wants to be part of. That's in my old world, right. Yeah. In my old drinking world. And, um, I am the other, I am the one that they're like cautionary tale, but I'm not like her. Um, if they only knew really <laughs> like how awesome it is. Um, yeah. I mean, hard, really hard and soul searching work, but, um, I'm really grateful for it. And I, I, I feel like I live an examined life now, right? Like we, we all do, we get to examine these things and look at our lives in a way that we didn't, we didn't before when we were drinking or using sex or using anything to kind of numb out mm-hmm. and uh, get there. Well, uh, and the boundary is so ambiguous too. It's like, well, when, when, when have I crossed the line? I mean, you know, looking back, of course, driving drunk with your kids in the car has probably crossed the line, but, but it's so, it's such an ambiguous line. That's why I think it's kind of up to us <laughs> to tell our stories, to, you know, let other people know, okay, if you've done, if you feel this way, maybe you have, you know, maybe this is the line, but mm-hmm. Yeah. So if you're questioning it, I was just having this conversation earlier this week with a friend of mine who's not an alcoholic and she does not even have a, a bad relationship with alcohol. And she's in, she was telling me that she's in some kind of forum with mothers and there's, there's been a lot of conversation with other women about, you know, women questioning their drinking and trying to moderate and they're, you know, they're having like accountability buddies around it and stuff. And she just out of curiosity, she asked me, what do you think, what do you think about that? And I said, I think if they're questioning their drinking, then there's a problem. I also think there's, I also think there's a problem because we probably how those women grew up, they're probably of my generation, maybe a little bit younger. The only thing that we know is either you are an alcoholic or you are not an alcoholic. Right. And, you know, you mentioned our friend Tiffany Hahn. You know, she is someone who who was on my podcast and we talked about that, that she doesn't identify as an alcoholic. And I think that's totally fine. I think, you know, there's all kinds of different parts mm-hmm. on the spectrum. There is a spectrum, it, yeah. Yeah, and you don't have to. I personally identify as an alcoholic, but that does not mean that that you have to in order to at least try sobriety. Right. 
It's a scary, it's that A word, right? It's just like people yeah. are afraid of it. And I think sometimes we talk about that here about how I, I view it um, as a person who really loves words and writes and, and has, um, you know, my dictionary from 1988 on my desk still that I look I up every, <laughs> you know, like I highlight all the words. I love words. That word um, is just a word to me, though. I don't, I, I know it's an important word to say inside the rooms. I know that it's not received really well outside the rooms, but it's like an identifier, a quick identifier, a one word that can help you connect with people, I think, when you're trying to get help. And I use it and I, I use it in my writing sometimes. I just, I'm not, I don't give it too much thought, but I know that a lot of people do in early sobriety and it can, it can stop them from getting help. Keeps them drinking. Yeah. 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 Well, where do you want to move on to, Sandra? Shall we? Yeah, let's just, let's, so I'm curious, did you get sober? So I know you're a life coach, right? As well as many other things, a writer Mm -hmm. and podcaster, but um, did you get sober? But when you got sober, were you already working as a life coach? It was right when I launched my business. So I had been blogging for, let's see, I started blogging in 2008 and mostly was writing about life stuff in the beginning and then started writing about my eating disorder and then thought it was interesting that people actually were interested and um, were starting to follow my writing. And then I got my certification in, in 2010 throughout that whole year. And at the very, very end of 2010, I launched what is what is now my business. And then it was one, two, three, four months later, I got sober. So it was pretty quick succession. Yeah. (laughs) And then what, what made you decide to go public then with your recovery on your blog? I waited a year and I, I knew from the beginning that I would eventually go public. And I remember I was on a run one time and I got a, you know, an intuitional hit to, to tell the story. And I had only been maybe this was, you know, after the second attempt where I knew, you know, where I knew for sure. And I think I had like five or six months at that point. And I talked to that same friend that I called my friend, Courtney Webster. And I, I talked to her about it and she said, why don't you just wait a year? Because this is so raw and personal to you. You're like an infant in this Mm -hmm. and, um, don't make it about other people yet. Be selfish with your recovery. And I took her advice and I waited a year and then I, I came out with it and I was, I was, I was scared. I was nervous. And I think most of it was, it wasn't even that I thought it would affect my business negatively. I felt like, I think that I, there was still a part of me that did, I didn't want people to think like, oh my God, how fucked up is this lady? You know, Mm -hmm. (laughs) because I still had shame around that, that I had, I needed to work on, but it was extremely therapeutic. And I, I don't think it's for everyone. I really don't think it's for everyone, but, um, given what I do and how I process, and how I heal, it was helpful for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And did you have a good response from your readers and was your clients? Yeah. I, did, I was not expecting it. And um, I, I was expecting a lot of people to say, bravo, congratulations, et cetera. What I wasn't expecting were all the private emails. Oh, um, the me too's and yeah, yeah. And that took me by surprise and brought, some of those stories brought me to my knees. Mm-hmm. And um and then I knew it was that it was a good thing that I had done that. And I still get emails of people, the ones that just make me cry my eyes out are the ones that, that are, you know, I, I heard your, I read your story and related so much and it, 
and it pushed me to get sober. I have a year and I have two children. Oh, and I'm just like, God, oh my right? God. Because yeah. I wanted to put a different face on alcoholism, you know, mm-hmm. that, that we see so still so much of it in the media of, of just what it doesn't look like. And there's right. so many, I mean, you guys know the stats that women in alcoholism is on the rise, that DUIs for women are on the rise. And, um, we're stressed out and we don't connect on a human level like we should, even though social media makes us feel like we do. Right. And, um, so we drink. Yeah. Did you ever have any, um, um, I'm asking for a friend. The friend is me. Um, <laughs> did you ever have any kind of trepidation with, um, with the traditions and sharing your story, um, you know, out loud with when you were yes. in the rooms? Yeah. And how did you, and did you talk to your sponsor? Did you, how did you reconcile that? And it, you know, you ask 10 different people who are in the program, you're going to get probably 10 different answers. Yes, definitely. <laughs> For um, sure. You know, I made the mistake of talking to old timers and <laughs> I mean, as you can probably understand the answer that I got, mm-hmm. and, you know, some older white men and, you know, like, mm-hmm. oh, oh, oh. Um, and of course I knew like I would never out anyone else. I asked my father's permission that I could even mention him when I do tell my story before, before, you know, I, um, so I didn't want to throw him under the bus. And I, I really had to do some soul searching around it. And, and I, I, I I'm a believer that if Bill W was alive today, <laughs> <laughs> that he would be like, y'all, we need some updating. <laughs> right. <laughs> I agree with that. I agree with that. It's a totally different world, obviously, than it's it was 80 totally years different. ago. Yeah. yeah. It was, it was almost a hundred years ago. And, and I just, I feel like I, 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 I totally agree with, oh my gosh, his name is escaping me right now. The guy who made the anonymous people. Oh, um, I don't remember his name. I saw the movie, but I don't Greg, remember. Greg yes. 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 It'll come to me later, but I agree with him that if we could tap into the, what, 20 million people in long-term recovery, things would change and just, and it would lower the stigma. I think we've already started by a podcast like yours and we have, yeah, yeah. And just lowering the stigma and having, having a place where people can just at least have the conversation and at least see, especially for women, especially see other women's faces and say like, oh my gosh you look just like me. You live in a neighborhood just like mine, that you have a life just like mine. And, and maybe, maybe I'll be okay in the end, because I think that what keeps a lot of us drinking is that fear and that shame and that stigma of this is not okay. It's, it's not okay to get sober and it's not okay to be where I'm at with my drinking. Both you have a problem. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And also the mysteries of just, um, recovery. You know, I was just mystified by what is recovery, that AA place. I like all of that was so mysterious to me. I didn't understand it because nobody was talking about it. Or at least people in my world weren't talking about it. And it's certainly even in just the three and a half years since I've been sober, there was not nearly as much information on the internet as there is now. So, and that's just from each of us piping up and telling our story tired of being quiet about it. And we're tired of, of being in church basements. We're tired of being, um, you know, these, these people who need to like lurk in the darkness, like smoking cigarettes and drinking coffee out of styrofoam cups. Like it's just, it's this old version of what it looks like. And I'm proud to be someone who has come out. I remember, I'll never forget it. Okay. I was at a meeting at a church and 
it was, I was part of some committee or something that helped set up and I was there like 10 minutes early or something. And there was somebody that worked at the church was still there and it was a man. And he, he was, he saw me and he said, Oh, are you here for, and he asked me something about the church. And I said, no, I'm here actually here for the AA meeting. And he paused and he like looked at me for a second and he l- literally laughed out loud. And he said, but you don't look like an alcoholic. <laughs> what he said to me. And I was like, Hmm. Thank you. (laughs) I think, yeah. (laughs) Congratulations to me. I I don't, I don't even, but it just struck me that, Hmm. that, that this is like another push, another reason that I, that I need to go out and tell my story and be the face of alcoholism. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, Well, just like they say in the rooms, you know, your secrets keep you sick. And if you're being secretive about your recovery as well, that's just another way to be less integrated. Yeah, well, the, that that um, I think that uh, that movie, The Anonymous People, really had an impact on me too, Andrea. Like when I saw that, I was finally like, okay, I can write about this. I can talk about this with Sandra. Um, I can be recovering out loud. And there was some kind of that was like a permission slip that movie for me um, when I watched it. And then in the rooms, I think the the idea of anonymity, where I where I kind of turn it over in my mind all the time. Like I want to be anonymous in the rooms. I don't want people talking about me to other people in other meetings. Um, I like how we can use some vague terminology, my sponsee, my sponsor, a friend in another meeting. I like that they don't use names, but I do find that when it gets really comfortable in a meeting, we start doing that. And I can see why that word anonymity, I, I kind of see where it takes place within the organization, right? Within the membership. But outside, I feel like I'm not blowing anybody's anonymity, only my own. And I've come, exactly. I think, I think that's totally fine, but I do respect the other people in the room and I'm very, try to be very careful. Um, obviously not talking about anybody on here and, and I would never do that. But, um, and if I did, Sandra would get me into shape. <laughs> <laughs> slap me around. What you're saying to me, Sandra, all the time when I'm um, restraint of pen and tongue. Why? <laughs> well, that's straight out of the big book. Right, right. That's what you remind me, like restraint of pen and tongue. And that makes me think. But oh, well, th- I'm so happy to hear all of that, Andrea. I think that's really going to be really helpful to our listeners, too, because um, it does seem like a big, scary thing to call yourself the A word. And it does. Um, it's not, you know. If we have a problem with drinking, alcoholism, alcoholic, all of those words, they apply. Well, or call yeah. it whatever you want. Or, or call, call it whatever it you want. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, if it resonates. Um, so I want to, in your, um, I'm just going to s- switch a little bit to your, um, to your new book, How to Stop Feeling Like Shit. I um, was wanted to comment just since what we're talking about here in the chapter three, you talk about checking out. Mm-hmm. And um, are your numbing mechanisms still working for you? And you share like eight tools to help one navigate um, wanting to numb out. Um, but you you specifically didn't say don't drink in that chapter. But I think right. what you were saying was that we should kind of listen and follow our intuition. Right. Um, can you chat a little bit about that, about our intuition? Because Sandra and I have been talking about that lately, and it's so powerful when we do. Yeah, well, and, and I specifically, I, that chapter title is kind of a nod to the rooms and right. the whole, because I love, one of my favorite sayings is, it works until it doesn't. Yeah. And I think that for a while, 
<laughs> our numbing mechanism with well, all of the chapters in my book, all of the behaviors, like they work for us for a while until they don't, until we get to a place where it's just not working anymore. And I think that anyone who has gotten sober has been in that place. <laughs> yeah. Um, and yeah, that's why I named it that. And, and it's like, you know, circling back to what we were talking about before and when you start to have a conversation with other people about moderating and, well, maybe this is a problem. And, or if you're like me standing in the, with the open door of the refrigerator, as your husband is pulling into the driveway and like chugging the bottle before you put the cork back on and put it in just to get a few more ounces and thinking that's kind of weird that I would do that. Do other people do that? That's, that's the whispers and that's the intuition, um, that it's, that it's not working anymore. And it just is, I think that especially women, our intuition is always there and it's always rooting for us. It's been there since birth. We have just figured out a way to make it go away a lot of times because it's stuff we don't want to hear. I didn't, I, I was like, oh, problem with drinking. Are you sure? Mm -hmm. <laughs> we screen, we screen those calls. We screen those messages and until they get louder and louder. And I'm sure everyone listening knows what that feels like. And yeah, I just, I feel just if anyone, you can, you can go on ignoring your intuition and ignoring your intuition. I mean, geez, I did it with men and mm -hmm. that never ended up working out <laughs> well, never, ever, ever. And I think it's the same with your numbing mechanisms. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. We were talking about this a little bit with Laura McCowan, who we had on the podcast last week. And, um, you know, when you first get in the rooms, they tell you, don't trust your own thinking, don't trust your own thinking. And I think that that is, uh, appropriate in mm -hmm. the beginning because you need to learn to ask for help and it's the fucking hardest thing to do. Um, but then eventually I think then you can get back to once you clear away some of, you know, some of the wreckage and you even just detox a little while, um, you can start to trust your intuition. And I think you're right. I think it, you know, it, it can guide you if, if you are willing to li listen to it. Yeah. Well, okay. So I have a question for, for you guys, cause I'm always really curious about this. Cause I get this question all the time is what is the difference between, especially in, in this world of recovery, what is the difference between a thought that you don't want to trust, you know, like the don't trust your own thinking versus the intuition of maybe I need to get sober. How do you think that in your own experience, how do you think that feels differently to you? Hmm. Go ahead, Tammy. Um, so I'm sorry. Tell me t the yeah. two questions again. I'm sorry. The thought between uh, don't trust your own thinking and then listening to your intuition. I think that don't trust your own thinking was really in the, in the beginning because I don't feel that way now. I feel I don't feel that I can't trust my own thinking. I feel a little more solid in my sobriety and maybe that's kind of arrogant for me to say, but I kind of trust that gut level reaction that I have now. I need mm -hmm. to pause right? I need to stop and think about it before I react. But I find that I'm much less reactionary, um, or much less reactive um, now that I'm sober. So I, that's, that's what I think. Yeah, well, and I think too, it's just the concept of, of staying curious. So if it's something that you are that's coming up, like it, like a question of, uh, you know, am I drinking too much? Am I drinking too much? And you are constantly you know, you might get a little 
peek of that when the curtains part for a second, but then you slam the curtains back. Um, that is, I think, an example of not trusting your th- own thinking. But if you stay curious, like, why am I, why does this keep coming up? Why am I asking myself these questions? Um, I think that is a way to get back to your intuition, back to trusting your own thinking, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Right, because I never trusted my thinking before. I never even thought too much about things, if I'm being really honest. Like, I I just reacted. I just created drama. I just was the life of the party. I I didn't give a lot of thought to my life. And, I, I mean, I'm 47 now, and I really... I missed a lot of time. <laughs> I missed a lot yeah. of years where now I'm, I think I live a very, um, um, examined life and not to my, not to paralyze me, but to just be thoughtful. I never had the time to do that. And my intuition now says to follow that or to, to go to meetings. I follow my intuition for that to reach out to people. I follow my intuition for that. So I feel like it's hyper, I'm hyper, um, aware of it now. And I feel like it serves me. Um, I mean, what about you? So do you, your intuition, when you wrote about this, I mean, that's kind of what the gist is what I got from that chapter was that, that, yeah, follow it, just listen to your gut and it will guide you. I mean, you have tools in there too. You have tools for people to follow, but I felt like that was like the underlying um, theme Mm -hmm. of your chapter. Yeah. And I think where people get confused is, well, they're both thoughts, you know, (laughs) this thought of yes, I can't dive so much pressure. I deserve, you know, another glass of wine. And then another thought of this is probably too much. And oh, shit, I got drunk again, or, you know, waking up the next morning and mm-hmm. feeling shame and hungover and et cetera, et cetera. So that's, it's just, it's a common question I get. And I, I love both of your answers. And I, I just love hearing people's different explanations of it. And for me, it's, it was, my intuition is more of a quiet knowing and Mm -hmm. sometimes, especially with this particular topic, it was a knowing of dread. And I kind of hate to use that word, but I just knew that if I, and it wasn't, I don't think an articulation of thoughts that came in and, and reported on it. It was a knowing that if I kept this up, that there was no turning back because I had tried, I had evidence that I had tried to cut back and it wasn't working. And then, you know, something we haven't even touched on is, is the obsession is Mm -hmm. I was at the point where the obsession felt like a prison Mm -hmm. and that's what I didn't want anymore. Like, and I tried so hard, like if I could just drink and not have the obsession, well, hallelujah. Right. Um, but I couldn't, I was, I was Mm -mm. realizing that I was constantly thinking about drinking or not drinking or just the feelings surrounding my drinking. And that, I believe that that was worse than any hangover that I ever had. Yeah. I always say it rented about 90% of my brain space and I'm not even kidding, especially Mm -hmm. in the, about the last 10 years of my drinking. It definitely, it definitely took up about 90%. I'm surprised I got anything else done. Yeah. (laughs) 10 years. Wow. You really put in an effort. (laughs) Oh, I did. Oh, I did. I tried so hard to keep it in my life. Uh, Yeah. Until, until I just finally, absolutely, I had no other choices. I couldn't, I couldn't keep it there anymore and, and can, and live really. I mean, that's, that's pretty much where I had gotten. Um, 
I just wanted to go back to your book. I love what I love most about your book. And thank you for sending that to us. That was great. Um, it's not just like, here's how to feel better, but here's like some actual actionable steps that you can take to start feeling better. Um, because I often think that we can get blind, we can get tripped up by, okay, but how, you know, what, what, how, how, how do I get there? And, um, I love that. I, I know that we all, we all want a quick fix, but, um, and there's (laughs) spoiler alert. Dang it. (laughs) (laughs) It reminded me when I was going through your book, it reminded me of, um, this friend of mine in the rooms tells the story about they, she was in early sobriety and they would read the promises and that line that said, we will amaze before we will be amazed before we were halfway there. She was always like, but where's the halfway point? I want to know yeah. exactly <laughs> the date mm-hmm. of the halfway okay. point. Is that like in a week In a mm-hmm. month? Can I put Where it in my Google it? calendar? <laughs> color code it. I'm right. ready to be amazed. <laughs> I'm ready. I'm willing. Put on the right music. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and it's what the, what that particular, the, the numbing chapter is, is really about just to kind of circle back about that is because one of my favorite things to talk about is, is feeling your feelings because I don't know about you, but I did not have any concept of that when I, before I got sober, I, um, I grew up in a family where, we loved the heck out of each other and we were happy, but that was the only thing that we expressed. And if you had any other feelings, you went and did those in your room. I never saw my parents. I know people have different experiences of seeing their parents rage or, you know, emote differently. I didn't, I never saw, I remember the first time I saw my, my father cry. Um, I was terrified. One of their very close, his best friend's wife committed suicide very violently. And he came home from work and broke down and told my mom. And I remember watching them from down the hallway. And I don't think that they knew that I could see them <clears throat> and just being absolutely terrified. And mm. so, and grieving for him, like seeing your father break down like that, I was probably eight or nine. And no one ever, I remember asking them about it, you know, like what happened with Mrs. Tappan and, and my mom wouldn't talk to me about it. And I just, that's kind of the theme of my family. And even when my parents split up, when my mom left, she asked, like, they sent me to therapy and I vowed like not to cry in front of the therapist. Like that was my goal. And, um, she would ask me like, are you okay with this? And it was kind of like, she was just checking off the boxes and, and we have since talked about this and she's apologized and we've made amends around it. But back then, you know, she just, she didn't know how to have to put words around what was going on and she'd raised a daughter who didn't know either and so that was our family dynamic and so it was all very strange and when I got sober I I was afraid of feelings I had I had pulled on this is another chapter of my book I had embraced the identity of being strong I thought that's what people wanted of me I thought that that's how I would find love and acceptance and praise and accolades and all of these things. If I put on this armor of being strong, Mm -hmm. suck it up, soldier on, you know, pick yourself up and dust yourself off. We don't have time for this. Mm Um, and that works until it doesn't. (laughs) Right. Right. (laughs) I got to a point where it wasn't working anymore. And, 
And really, you know, so I also, I got divorced. I had a very messy and ugly and painful divorce in 2006. So when I got sober in 2011, that exploded in my face, that grief. And I was not expecting that. I kept dreaming about it and, and it kept coming up and I was like, why is this happening? This happened, you know, five years ago. And, and that was it. It was because I had, I had shoved it down and that's why they call it baggage. And I had packed it away and packed it away until I didn't have anything anymore. And once I released it and surrendered, I could process it and move through it. And it was not easy. And it was a little bit of a, a street fight, but, um, God, it's so much better. It's so mm-hmm. much better just allowing myself and not making it mean anything. And right. it just is like, oh, you know, my body's just doing what it needs to do, just like sneezing or birthing a baby or farting or, you know, whatever. It's just feelings. Mm-hmm. And how do you handle, I have a question, how do you handle this with your own children? Because I, I, I think this is the, the one point where my husband and I might have a slight disagreement because I... When I'm upset, I'm, it's there. I'm upset. I, I don't have a poker face. And, um, you know, again, I try not to frighten my children. But, um, and, and then I can always circle back and make amends or explain to them, look, I'm sorry, I was upset. I was angry. I was hurt. I, you know, and, and really explain to them why I was having that emotion. But then I think it gives them the permission to also show emotions too. And I mean, I don't know if you have a boy, but, um, I've especially practiced this with my son. You know, I've always just let him, I mean, he's on the spectrum, so he has always been a pretty, Oh, Oh, okay. He's always been a pretty emotional kid. Um, but, uh, you know, and of course there's, you got to draw some boundaries, like, you know, mm-hmm. laying down in the middle of the grocery store exactly. is not <laughs> a, an acceptable place for this. <laughs> but, um, but, you know, I've always like let him cry when he needs to cry. Mm-hmm. And uh, so anyway, how do you, how do you translate that to you, your, your own kids? That's such a great question. And I, I actually wrote about it a little bit in, in the numbing chapter about feeling feelings because I get this question a lot. So I do I have a 10-year-old son and an eight-year-old daughter. And I'm I have now just come to realize that our children will inevitably end up in therapy telling stories about us. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, I always say I'm saving for therapy, not for yeah. college. <laughs> and I also think that their memories are going to be interpreted, you know, they're going to interpret things differently and collect memories differently because I'm sure some of the stories I have about my parents, they're like, that's not how it happened. Right. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. So it just, it's kind of, I think, part of childhood and, and parenthood, et cetera. So that being said, what I have realized, you know, I knew going into parenthood that I wanted to, and my God, that's a tricky conversation that I've had with my mom before because she's curious and, and about the work I do and when I have brought up, you know, what I do with my kids. I have to be very careful with my words as to not say, I'm doing it differently because this is how I would Because right. I, <laughs> I was so scarred. Yes. You, you know, I have to say it. My parents did the best they could. They were yeah. wonderful parents. And there, there were some things that, there were some gaps. So what I do is one of the lessons that I teach them and I articulate this to them is I say, you are never wrong for feeling whatever you feel. You are allowed to feel whatever feelings you have, but what you are responsible for is your behavior. So what that looks like is you're allowed to be angry at me, 
I know I'm going to do things that make you angry and you can be angry, but you are not allowed to slam your door, call me names, be nasty to me. And if that ever happens, you need to clean it up. And we talk about what that actually looks like, cleaning up your messes. And it's basically making amends and, and apologizing. And also, yeah, I'm with you. I cry in front of my children. And, but I do think that there are such things as emotional boundaries. And I think that we should not have our children be responsible for making us feel better. So it's like, I'm not going to come to my children when something happens and, and cry to them about it. They are first and foremost, my children, exactly. not my friends. Yeah. And I also think that, um, sure I can cry about them. You know, when my father died in 2016 and I, I had some, I had some like in the fetal position crying, like you can't breathe moments. Mm -hmm. I didn't want my children to see that, Right. but they do They have seen me cry before about other things. And exactly like you, like I talk to them about it and, and ask them like, were you scared when mommy was crying? And, and my daughter has answered yes. And I have to remember at the end of the day, it's not my job to keep her comfortable and uh, all the time. It's right. my job just to open up a conversation with her about it and, and know that she is resilient. Yeah. Well, I think I, I think I, I highlighted a couple parts that I really, I think right from the section that you're talking about right now, and I was going to read a, just a two little parts here um, from chapter three. And it said that um, I've taken responsibility for the actions that surround my feelings in other words, I can't help what I feel, but I can make a choice about how I respond to it or treat people because of it. Mm -hmm. And then I'll skip down to the next paragraph. He said, life is beautiful and excruciating all at the same time. Walking through grief feels like walking through fire. It's the scariest thing we'll probably ever face. We're convinced we can't do it without pushing it away or fighting along the way. Or maybe because it's not linear, we're convinced it's just too uncertain. But what I know for sure is this kind of fire this kind of pain and sorrow and all the other feelings is all we have. It's the most meaningful proof of the beauty of life we can experience. I love mm. that. Thank you. Really beautiful. I wrote that. I went back to that chapter actually because my dad died right. um, while I was writing this book. I was done with that chapter and I went back mm. and wrote about grief because I had never lost anyone like that. Yeah. yeah. And did that, was that... Um, did that trigger you at all with your drinking? Did that, totally. Yeah. <laughs> right. I mean, I know yeah. the answer to that, but yeah. Um, I had always wondered, you know, like, would I drink if my husband divorced me or, if, you know, if, if one of someone that I'm really, really close to dies? And I, I know I'm not alone in this. I've, I've asked other people, you know, oh, I don't yeah. so much anymore. How, I have like the, the relapse fantasies of like, mm -hmm. this is the thing that's going to get me to drink and it's going to be a noble enough <laughs> right. No Good excuse. No one would question you. Yeah. Oh, that poor woman. No wonder she drank again. Mm -hmm. Now yeah. I know when I have those, when I go deep into those thoughts, it's it's time to call somebody or go to a meeting. But that was one of them. You know, like if my one of my parents died or, or something like that. And so when he died, and God, wouldn't it be ironic? Like the man who <laughs> got sober mm -hmm. and had twenty something years of sobriety. And when we were, we were going through his stuff after he died, I opened up his bedside table and there was, um, the daily reflections mm -hmm. and his big book. Yeah. And I held it in my hands and I cried and I cried and I looked and like, there was all these notes that, and you know, like post-its that he had put in there and his, in his handwriting. And it was such a gift to me to, to get to have that. And, mm. um, these things that, that had helped him so much, but 
yeah, I, it was, it was rough because he got sick at the end of September. Um, well, he had been sick before that, but he was diagnosed at the end of September with a terminal illness and he was dead on October 16th and I was mm. with him. It was just he and I, and, um, it was brutal. Like there was no other, there was no other way to describe it. It was excruciating the whole night of him dying. I, I, the thing I kept thinking is like, where are the grownups? Because this feels like such an adult situation and I do not feel like I am, um, like I am able to handle this. And mm -hmm. the thing is we do, we just, we somehow call on whatever courage we have and, and walk into it. And so when I went home, um, I was still in San Diego for a couple of weeks as we planned his funeral and I, I overfunctioned and, you know, it's just what I do. And then I got home and, you know, that's when the real grieving started. And my, my husband had gone back to work. My mom, my mom had come out to help my husband watch my kids while I was away. She had flown home and my kids were back in school and I was alone loading the dishwasher. It was like 10 o'clock in the morning, like on a Monday. And I got that thought of, and I wasn't even, I was just, you know, like probably thinking about what I needed to get the grocery store and, and just got that thought of like, Oh, fuck, my dad's dead. And then my next thought was a bottle of wine would just make this all go away. And then my next thought was that I was, I was pissed off. I wasn't pissed off that I couldn't drink. I was pissed off that I even had that thought. Like it was all very, emo it was, it was a blend of emotions of my dad being dead, of not being able to drink. And then also of just having the thought of wanting to drink and just, it was just this mess. And I collapsed on the floor. It was one of those moments where my knees could not carry me anymore. And I am on the ground crying and I look up at the counter and I could see the edge of my phone. And my thought was, if I don't call or text someone, I could be in real trouble today. Mm -hmm. And so I texted my friend Laura McCowan and I texted my friend Courtney Webster and they both immediately responded. And um, I also went to a meeting that night. And um, it just, it's, grief is one of, you know, I've always really struggled with control. And um, a couple months later, I got the word surrender tattooed on my arm as a reminder because there's two things that have really pushed me to surrender to life and realize that I'm, I'm really not in the driver's seat as much as right. I like to think I am. Mm -hmm. That is birthing a child mm -hmm. and walking through grief. Yeah. Um, we can have all the plans in the world and it just, and it's the thing too about grief. I want to say one more thing about it that was surprising to me because I got a lot of advice and people said, Oh, you know, the first Christmas might be really hard and his birthday and your birthday. And so that kind of made me happy because I was like, Oh, I'm going to put it in my calendar. I'm going to block off appointments. You know, I'm going to, I'm going to beat this to the punch. And it really wasn't those things that got me. For instance, we went to Myrtle beach several months after my dad died. It must've been spring break. And we're sitting on the beach, minding our own business. And I look over and there's somebody flying a kite. And I had not had this memory in years, but then all of a sudden I remember the park that we used to go to all the time that was right near our house. And my dad coming home with a kite that had this long tail on it. And he's like, let's go to the park. And this whole like vignette runs through my head of him running and showing me how to fly the kite. And there was just enough wind. And then hearing like his feet on the, and now I'm going to start crying. Like you're going to make me cry too. <laughs> it's like that, like that took me out. And mm -hmm. it's, and that's what surrender is. It's just like, yep. 
shit, this, that is what grief is. And that's why they call it like riding the wave of grief is that sometimes it hits you out of nowhere and you're not even looking. It's not anyone's anniversary or a holiday or a birthday. It's just a regular Tuesday and you see somebody with a goddamn kite and then I'm on the ground crying. My husband's like, what? <laughs> and and yeah. that type of stuff that I could not have anticipated about grief. And um, and it made me it made me mad because I wanted I wanted um, I wanted an itinerary <laughs> mm-hmm. like that woman that you talked about. Like when 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 is this gonna you know I wanted to be able to expect it and I couldn't. And I think that that's what drives people to drink too, is the unexpectedness of it. It's yeah. scary. Right. Because letting it overtake you, you don't know where, where is this going to take me? Where, where am I going to end up if I ride this wave? Right. And I think that it was such a, it was such a lesson in self-trust for me because before I used to push that down and I would, I would not trust the fact that I was going to be okay on the other end. I did not, I, I was under the assumption, like if I open up Pandora's box, I might never stop crying. Right. I don't want anyone to witness that. I don't want to lose control. I don't want to feel like I don't have everything all together. And I don't know what's on the other side of that. Therefore, I am going to drink and drink and drink or control or, you know, whatever it is. And, or stay um, really busy. Yeah. Busyness is one of mine too. And so... I think it was such a huge lesson of, of mine that yes, this can be excruciating and yes, I am going to survive it. Yeah. Hmm. That was... Yeah. I got me all teary. <laughs> I know me too. <laughs> well, then my job is done. <laughs> no, but it was brutal. It was, it, and it's, I think I kind of have to chuckle a little bit about it because you know, here I am writing this self-help book about all these behaviors that we do to try to protect ourselves and push away all this stuff. And then this happens to me 75% of the way, you know, I was about three quarters of the way through writing this book. And I kind of like chuckle at my father and it's like, thanks dad. And I, I wrote about him in the very last chapter because I, I, and I, and throughout the book and I, I said, you know, yeah, I did fall back on some of my old behaviors when he died, because that's what we do. We know these behaviors. It's what we do. And the difference was, is that I knew I was going to come out of it. I knew I was going to come out of my bedroom after a couple of days of isolating. I knew I was going to, um, I knew I was going to grieve after I overfunctioned at for two weeks planning his funeral. Mm-hmm. And, um, it was all at the end of the day. I know it seems a little bit trite, but it was all okay. And now I feel like I can handle anything. You know, it's like, do I want to? Well, fuck no. (laughs) Yeah. It's just life. Yeah. I felt beautiful and it was excruciating. I think it feels like you have a little bit of a superpower after you kind of, I mean, you're not through it. You'll have it. But I mean that once you experience that kind of grief, you, and you, and you don't drink, I felt really um, invincible a little bit for a while. I felt like I got this. I can, I am. Um, I'm not going to drink. I thought I would, you know, with a loss. Um, but I think during during um, hard times, right? Like I'm I'm in a gratitude circle with Sandra and seeing women who are grateful for really good things. I know that you write about this as well about gratitude, but that like I could learn from other women having hard times, and it showed me how I could do that too. 
that it didn't have to be all of the happy, sunshiny things on a gratitude list, that it could be um, that we're still showing up for our kids or our family um, on a Friday night when we know we used to be checking out um, and having cocktails and putting them to bed early so that we could have our time. Bedtime routine. Yeah. 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 And just so that gratitude didn't have to just be this big, happy thing. I think that's what helped me through a lot of um, a lot of hard times this year was that I could go to that list and kind of Appreciate the good, but also appreciate the really hard things and take a look at that. And there's no way that I did that before when I was drinking. There's no way I would have even considered it. You know, it wouldn't even enter my mind. I would have a pity party and a, you know, drama circle and try to pull everybody in. Um, But having the clarity of sobriety, like you, you got to really feel those feelings for your dad. And that was, um. That's that's the gift of grief, I guess, right? I mean, yeah, you get those moments of um, it's really hard, but it's really kind of bittersweet, and and you get to be with that feeling and not numb out from it. Yeah, and I, I think about sometimes I look back on the kind of the events that took place when I was when I had had flown back home to be with him when he died, and um, you know, I was I was staying with my, my longtime best friend since high school. And I was thinking, you know, and she's a normal drinker. Um, and I would have drank with her excessively. I probably would have been somehow figured out a way to drink at his funeral, even though there was no booze there, I would have snuck it in somehow. Like there, I just, I would have drank my whole way through it. Mm -hmm. And just because it was so extraordinarily painful and I would Mm -hmm. not have been able to fully lean in to the grief and the sorrow of, of what I was experiencing. It was just, it was too much the way the, the kind of metaphor that I use when I, when it comes to thinking about how I used to be with feelings is, do you guys remember the, the cartoon Pepe Le Pew? Mm-hmm. Do you remember when he would try to hug the kitty and she would like try to get out? I mean, it's so like rapey <laughs> and gross now that I think about it. <laughs> right. <laughs> she has a me too story. <laughs> yes. <laughs> But like, that's what I felt about feelings. You know, it's like, I felt like they were trying to like, oh, baby, like wrap their arms around me. I was like, no, 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 no. Get away, get away, get away. Just like, that thought always comes to my mind. Like that. Like, no, 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 no. I'm running as fast as I can away from this. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, and then not even to mention that, you know, you, you got to honor your father and not make it about you too, you know, because that's how I handled everything. I mean, my father died when I was about eight months sober and... Oh God, that would have all been all about me. <laughs> oh really? Yeah, yeah. yeah it, you know, it just would have been about me, about my loss, my drama, my, you know, it would have it would have been everything about me, and I probably wouldn't have been able to show up for my mom, um, and the rest of my family, and kind of be a service and honor my dad. It it just you know, drinking through that would have been, uh, you know, just made it a a drama situation about me and so um anyway just what a you know what a gift yeah um so I know we have a hard stop here soon um and there's about 117 other things I want to ask you about um so maybe we have to do this another time but uh, I'd be happy to come back I think we could talk for another 90 minutes (laughs) yeah all your books and um uh, and that you are um 
a former roller derby queen with your name, Veronica Vane. I mean, there's just a lot going on here, Andrea, that we haven't touched on. <laughs> but we wanted to talk about your book because that's what's out. And it's called How to Stop Feeling Like Shit. And um, but I think we have to kind of get to your three favorite things um, that are in your unruffled toolbox. So let's do that. And then we can I want you to promote the book and say what you want to say at the end here. But do you what's your do you have three items that you want to share with our listeners that are in your unruffled toolbox this week? Yeah, I think, again, it might be you know something that everybody says, but mine is the, the, the trusted people that I reach out to. And mm. before I used to not. I had surface level friends and, um, I might tell, you know, I would tell them like what was going on, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't really express to them my feelings around it. Or especially if it was a feeling that I felt like I shouldn't have, then I wouldn't share it with them. And that's different now. And I have intentionally nurtured friendships that there is trust, there's mutual trust and, and, um, it's unlike anything I've ever had before. So that's one thing. Okay. The other thing is, is writing and yes, I do it for a living, but Um, I do, I have to write for myself and no one else so that I can process things so that Mm -hmm. I can heal from things so that I can, I mean, that is definitely part of my recovery. When I, when I came home after my dad died and I was still under a deadline where I had to finish this self-help book, I was like, there's no, there's no way. Like I, I can't shift gears. They gave me, the publisher gave me a little bit of an extension, but it wasn't, it wasn't a lot. So I sat down and honored what I was feeling and I wrote dark poetry really about my father, about our relationship, about his death, about um, how I was feeling. And to be honest with you, there are some pieces that I read and I'm like, I don't even remember writing that at wow. all. It was something that I just had to let flow through me. And it was, it was instrumental, I think in my healing and my process and just allowed me to make space for getting back to work and, and, yeah. and doing my job. So that's, that's the second thing. And then the third thing is, cause I know you mentioned, um, well, I can talk about tools and that's my favorite tool to write, especially that type of stuff, like poetry and, um, really emotional things. It's called om writer. Have you ever heard of it? No. How do you spell it? So it's O M M W R I T E R. And since I bought it like in 2012, there's like a newer version out and it's just really beautiful, um, interface and you can choose different backgrounds and they have music that's all instrumental because I can't hear, I love music, but I can't hear words as I'm trying to write. It's like, same here. Radio same stations here. On. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Very auditory. Um, and so even I love it so much and I've used it for so long now. And I only, I don't use it when I'm writing self-help. I really only use it if I'm writing something I will definitely use it as I'm writing my memoir, but it's, I hear that music and I can instantly drop into the place of, um, oh gosh, I mean, not to sound dramatic, but like otherworldliness of just, I need this. (laughs) So this is a a program, an Mm -hmm. app. What is it? Software. I guess it's an app. Yeah. Okay. I use it on my, I wouldn't use it on my phone just because I don't type long things on my phone. It's on my computer. It's It's pretty affordable. I think it's, I think it's under $50 and there's like a free version where you can try it out mm-hmm. and see if you like it before you buy it. Um, but it's not a reoccurring payment. It's just, they might have changed it. I don't know how big they are now, but I love it. Huh. They I'll definitely upgraded out. it too. That's oh, a good tool because yeah, I have to have silence too. Um, or just instrumental when I write, um, in anything actually. <laughs> they have one of the music options. It's, um, it sounds like you're on a train. 
Oh, that is so <laughs> like we're cool. going somewhere. Oh, I like I that. Oh my God, you may have just changed my life. I think so. <laughs> <laughs> because I just, I just really had to pound out something, and I was spending many hours behind the computer, and it was like my brain wanted to f- fly so bad. It was like, get up, fight or flight now, fly, fly. <laughs> just, yeah. just making myself sit there and do it. And I think, and I kept thinking, I need some kind of something, music or something in the background, but I was afraid to, you know, start going through albums because then that would have just been a whole nother rabbit hole. I could have flown down. Same with Spotify. Like, is it this station? Yeah, but that's why I love it. Okay. We have a few more minutes here. I wanted to ask you... um, so, so you, so you do your writing. You were sharing recently on social media um, that you were going to write a memoir, and you just mentioned that a few minutes ago. So, is that your next endeavor? Oh, <laughs> didn't mean to stress you yes out. No. <laughs> uh, someone early on who's who I respect in the publishing industry told me as I was writing my first book, and I told her that I wanted to write a memoir, and she said, "Memoirs don't sell unless you're a celebrity." And so I kind of held on to that. I was like, okay, then I won't write one. But I've just, you know, I I think it's, it's, yes, I'm going to write one. And I, oh God, it's, it's so different than writing self-help, writing the story of your life. It's just excruciating. And I, I talked to a memoir coach and she's like, okay, send me what you have. And so I was like, oh, I actually have to sit down and write some stuff. So one of the very first stories I sat down to write was the story of an abortion I had when I was 17 and I was in high school and um, you know, girls like me didn't get pregnant. I didn't know, again, I didn't know anybody who had ever had an abortion and I wasn't sure if I wanted to do it or not. And I couldn't tell my mom cause she had always told me she would send me away to Canada to have the baby. And anyway, it's just this excruciating story of, of not knowing if I was making the right decision or not and going and doing it anyway. And, um, so I sat down to write it and I'm like sobbing as I'm writing the story that happened 25 years ago. I'm like, Oh God, this is going to be, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's going to be rough. It's more work. It's <laughs> but, totally different. Yeah, but you're ready for it, right? You feel ready? I think I'm ready. Yeah. yeah. Going back to the intuition thing. My intuition has been like, you need to tell the story. And yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's going to be a couple of year process, I think. Yeah. Well, that's exciting. Okay. Um, so I know you've been doing your book tour for this this book. How mm-hmm. um, Was that good? Was that um, how had that feel to travel around and be away from your family and... Well, I, t- I took my kids, I took my son oh, to New York with me, and then I took my daughter to Chicago because i that's what I wanted. That's my goal is I want to engineer my career to where I can take my children with me. So I, I partly did that. I also went to San Diego, L.A., Portland alone because it was just a longer leg. And then um, I had an event here in Greensboro where I live. Hmm. And so it was definitely up-leveling. I had a trepidation about it because, again, as a writer and a podcaster – I can hide. <laughs> yeah. Right. Hide right. In plain sight, that's what I call it. I hide in plain sight. So to actually go out on the road and risk people showing up and not showing up because I half joke that those are equally as scary to me. It's true. Um, and I just, I did it and I knew it was me walking my talk because I tell people all the time to push themselves out of their comfort zones and I needed to do that for myself. So I did it and it was, there were some really amazing moments and there were some really hard moments of people that didn't show up for me, whom I assumed would, like family members. Mm-hmm. And I'm grateful for both because mm-hmm. it showed me that I can carry all those emotions at the same time. I don't need to bypass any of them. 
and I got to hug some really cool people. So it was great. Mm-hmm. Well, I have no doubt that you don't walk the walk. So that's, yeah, that's good. Well, tell people where they can find your book and, um, and your website and all of that. Yeah, it's at um, all major bookstores. I think all Barnes and Nobles and, and, you know, big bookstores and Amazon and target.com and Costco.com. And, or you can go to my website. They're both there at your kickasslife.com. And I love hanging out on Instagram. That's probably where you're, where you'll find me the most, you know, talking to people and, um, and, and that's at the same handle, your kickass life. Right. And we'll, and we'll, um, in the intro, we'll, we'll share, um, that you, your podcast is called your kickass life. And you have a recovery series. So we'll, we'll fill everybody in at the beginning because I know we didn't have enough time here to get to that. But um, thank you so much for agreeing to be on yes. here, Andrea. I really appreciate thank talking you, with Andrea. you. It's been so great talking to both of you. And I'm happy to come back and share more stories about recovery or I have so many questions for you guys. I, I like, <laughs> you know, like I want to know your stuff too, even though you probably told the story to your listeners so many times, but I just think these conversations are so important. And I just want to say a special thank you to everyone listening. I know that their time is precious and I do not take for granted for one minute that they have, they have spent the last hour plus with us. So thank you yeah. everyone. Yeah. Yes. Thank you. All right. Have a great day. Have a good day guys. The Unruffled Podcast was created and produced by Sandra Primo and Tammy Salas. Our show is edited and mixed by Steve Hecht. Original music composed and performed by NMMD. Original artwork created by Tammy with the help of graphic designer Chris Aguirre. Thanks for listening.